Well, thank you. You may be seated. Thank you so much. <coughs> I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to be here. And uh, man, I'll, I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's humbling in many respects. Um, many of you set out as a young person in college and you have aspirations for what God would have you to do, where he would take you. And, uh, you know, it's like the poem by Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. And that one uh, verse in there, that one stanza where he says, uh, two roads diverged in a yellow wood and being one traveler long I stood. But he took the road not taken and the road less traveled by. And I, I want to tell you this, you know, I preached my first sermon over 40 years ago now, which is, uh, seems like a moment ago. Um, I'm 60 now, and it has flown by. But in all of those years, you know, there were certain things that, man, I hoped I would have the opportunity to do this. I would hope that God would allow me to do, and just fill in the blank. But I'm at the place now in life where I just want to keep going. It, it really doesn't matter. I just want to finish. I don't want to drop out. And I don't mean that necessarily from an academic standpoint, though certainly that ought to be a goal of yours, stick with it. But I want to tell you this, you will have plenty of exit ramps in ministry. You'll have them during your college years. You'll have opportunities to bail, to go to plan B, to choose a different course. And you'll have to determine in your heart that the call that God has placed upon me is something that, from, from which I cannot escape. It's not something that I endeavor to flee from. I'm not looking for the exit. I want to stay on the road that God has placed me on. This morning, I, I'd like to draw your attention to a, uh, a character that's seldom referenced in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter number 2. This man's name is only mentioned a couple times in Scripture. But he had a profound influence on arguably the greatest Christian that ever lived in the New Testament, maybe the most powerful servant. That was the Apostle Paul. Wasn't anybody like Paul? His, from his conversion in Acts chapter number 9, where he asked God, uh, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And God doesn't even give me the answer then. He says, arise, go to the city, and it shall be told thee. To in other words, God many times puts his servants in that I'll tell you later mode. Right now, you'd like to know what's going to happen next month. Next, where am I going to be in five years? Where, who am I going to marry? What field am I going to be on? Am I going to be on a foreign field? I'm going to be serving on the West Coast. And by the way, as, <coughs> as Dr. Getch mentioned, we need laborers on the West Coast. We've seen a tremendous amount of flight from the West Coast. <coughs> But we need servants. We need people who are willing to, you know, buckle down, roll up their sleeves, and get to work. But this man, whose name is mentioned just briefly, the Apostle Paul speaks so glowingly of him. And so if you, you could draw your attention chapter number 2 and verse number 25. We'll read a few verses there, and then one other verse in chapter 4, and then pray. <laughs> The Bible says, yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. 
For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I send him therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. Then if you would turn a page over to chapter number four and one last verse. Verse number 18. But I have all and abound. <coughs> I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Would you pray with me this morning? Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would guide and direct our words and our thoughts this morning. I pray you'd speak to every heart. They've got a lot on their table, many burdens, many hurts, many needs, different seasons of life, changes at home, and many whose hearts are already uh, headed towards ministry, and some who are planning and preparing to travel to the Philippines. But I pray in these few moments, God, you would still our attention and you would speak to us as only you can in these few moments. May your will be accomplished in our hearts and may we be open and receptive to your word. Speak to us, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are several things we notice about him and I think one of the first ones is that he was dedicated to a man. He recognized that Paul was the guy that God had called him to labor alongside. And God will give you the opportunity to be part of a ministry. God will give you the opportunity to be part of a church, whether it's as a layman, whether it's as a youth pastor, a school teacher, whether it's on a foreign field, but God will knit your heart to someone. And Paul said Epaphroditus was that way. He bought in, he was all in. And God will give you the privilege and the opportunity to do that. And it doesn't mean that who with whomever you serve is going to be infallible, not going to make mistakes. My goodness, 40 plus years of preaching, I couldn't even begin to count the mistakes that I've made. I wish there were a lot of things that I, that I wish I could have done and maybe do differently. But there are no mulligans in life. And so you want to make those moments count. But when you find someone and you say, man, that's, a, that's the kind of person I want to serve with. That's the kind of person I want to knit my heart with them and, and just rally and say, I want to be with them. I want to serve with them. I want to join my heart to them. Paul said that about Epaphroditus. The first knitting that will be will be because of the relationship you share with Jesus Christ. I was in Pennsylvania just a couple weeks ago, and my flight was canceled to get back for Sunday morning service, and so I wasn't able to even be there for our Sunday morning service. I was taking the last flight out, which is usually a mistake, and it was the only one that I could get. So I was a little frustrated, and I called an Uber to take me back to where I was going since the plane didn't take off. And guy shows up and the Holy Spirit says, you need to witness to him. And my first response was not real spiritual. And this just two weeks ago, 40 plus years of ministry, but I was pretty bummed. I was aggravated. I was thinking, what about church tomorrow? I've got all these things going through my mind. And the Lord said, you need to talk to this guy. <clears throat> so I didn't argue with him much further. And I said, okay. And so I introduced myself and I asked him his name. His name was Ton, T-H-O-N. 
and he was from Sudan. And I asked him, I said, tell me how you came to America. Tell me a little bit about this and that. And I asked him, I said, Tom, let me ask you a question. And I knew I was somewhat familiar with the Sudan, a split between Christians and Muslims, very difficult place to live. But he left Sudan 18 years ago. But he told me the story. He said, I, said, I asked him, I said, Tom, are you a Christian? And tears welled up in his eyes, Dr. Getch. And he said, a missionary reached me 18 years ago. I don't know who that was. He didn't share the name, but I thought it could have been somebody just like you. And as soon as Tom began to say this, and I said, man, Tom, isn't it, isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus Christ is your Savior? Tears running down his face, and he said, oh, the mercy of God. Oh, the forgiveness of God. Oh, the long suffering of God. I told him, I said, Tom, keep your hands on the wheel. We're driving down the interstate here. I said, I know I'm going to heaven, but I'm not wanting to head there right now. And we got to our place, it was about a 25-minute drive, and all we talked about was how good God was. And I totally forgot about the fact that I missed my plane. I wasn't dwelling on that anymore. Because I recognized, hey, this is a guy I've never met before, but our hearts were knit because of Jesus Christ. He dropped me off at the place I was staying, <coughs> set my bags out of the back of his car. And then he, he was probably, I don't know, six, 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 seven, and he great grabs me and gives me a great big hug. Probably people on the street there were looking at us. What is this guy doing? Tears running down his face, tears running down my face. And I told him, I said, Ton, I said, I've never met you before. I'll probably never see you again, but we'll meet again in heaven. And he said, and he's raising his hand. He says, praise the Lord. And I'm thinking, what is that? That's that bond that comes and that dedication to one another because of the cause of Christ. Paul said about Epaphroditus, this man was right there with me. It'll be one of the greatest privileges in your life to find someone that God knit your heart to, to serve. Then secondly, may I say this about, he was not just dedicated to a man, but he was dedicated because, despite malady. Despite malady. You know, you're going to go through some adversity. Some of you, as he mentioned for prayer this morning, are going through it right now. But that won't be the end of it. You'll face hardship. You'll face difficulty. You'll face things that will knock you flat. You'll face storms that you never saw coming. <clears throat> things you thought you would be prepared for. And then all of a sudden you think, where in the world did this come from? It could be sickness. Our youngest daughter, when she was 13 months old, was diagnosed with inoperable liver cancer. I was pastoring, I was, I thought everything, I thought I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing, I felt that way. Then I remember the moment we got the news of that, I, I began to question God, what are you doing here, Where, is it me? Am I wrong, am I away from you, is my heart not right? And boy, I started doing all this introspective looking, and looking inward, and God said no. And I said, well God, are you gonna heal her? I've heard all these stories. Everybody tells the story, you know, we opened them up and the cancer was gone. It was inexplicable. I said, God, would you do that? And God never answered. And you know, sometimes you go through seasons in life when you pray and there is no answer. I can tell you this, 40 years of ministry, it will not always be easy to pray. There's a wonderful song that blessed our hearts this morning, but there will be moments and seasons and windows in your life where praying will be a chore. There will be times when reading your Bible will be difficult. I was talking to a man just this week, and 
I believe, he, I believe he's preached here at this, at this ministry. He called me, he was sitting there, it was <coughs> Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday afternoon. And he said, I'm sitting here at my desk. And he said, God told me to call you. He said, but I gotta tell you this. He said, I don't wanna go any further. He said, I'm in the biggest fog I've ever been in my life. He said, I don't wanna pray. I don't wanna read my Bible. And he said, I'm getting ready to walk into our church auditorium for a midweek service. He said, I don't even wanna be here. He said, does that happen? Sure it does. I told him, I said, listen, I said several things. I listened to him. He probably talked for 15, 20 minutes, and I talked for a few. I told him, I said, when you're in a fog, I said, don't do anything stupid. And one thing, when that happens, I, just real quickly, I gave him three quick thoughts. I said, number one, don't ever change your direction in the middle of a fog. Because you were on the right course when that fog set in. Don't vary. Don't veer. Don't make a crazy decision when things look unfixable and untenable in your life. One of the greatest mistakes you'll ever make is, man, I just don't know what to do. When you don't know what to do, do what you know to do. And I told him, I said, don't change your course. Don't change your course. And I told him this, I said, I said, listen, I said, and don't make a rash decision. And know that every step you take in the fog has got to be a slow one. I was talking about our youngest daughter. There were two nights when she was going through treatments. She went through treatments for almost a year. Had multiple surgeries, and they took most of her liver. And she's a college graduate today. I praise the Lord for it. But I remember when all that was happening, there was a doctor who came in, pediatric oncologist, and they had told us, they said, she may not survive this night. She came in and she knelt down in front of me. My wife was sobbing. I was doing all that I could to comfort her, but I needed comfort myself. And this lady said to me, she said, she said, remember this. She said, three steps forward, two steps back. I said, what do you mean? She said, because sometimes when you're going through the hardest things in life, you just keep going forward. Three steps forward, two steps back. And she said, because you'll always be making progress. My wife and I held on to that for many months throughout that time as our daughter was going through treatments. And then God was merciful, God was gracious, and he healed her, and I'm grateful for that. But I can tell you, there will be exit ramps and opportunities for you to get out of the ministry because malady will come. It'll come in the shape of wounds. It'll come in the shape of wrongs. It'll come in the shape of words. And sometimes those things come, and they seem so overwhelming. You think, why am I even doing this? Why am I even bothering? By the way, that pastor called me Sunday afternoon, and he, he told me, he said, the fog has lifted. And always knows this, the fog will lift. It always will. I remember times early in ministry, and these aren't just stories to tell. I literally remember we didn't have food in the cupboard. I remember the first church that I went to pastor. <coughs> they handed me a check the first Sunday. There were 21 people there counting my family. They handed me a check, Dr. Getch, and they said, now, don't cash this. That's always encouraging, isn't it? They said, it, it's not good yet, but it'll be good by Friday. Well, we had to eat before Friday. It was Sunday. But we had nothing. I didn't tell our children that. My wife knew. And I remember praying. You know, I said, I've heard so many stories about God doing something. Would you just come through for me? Have you ever felt that way? You will one day if you don't now. 
I don't want to hear, I, I love the testimonies and I love the books, but God, I want that for me. I want that in my life. Because you'll need to be dedicated despite malady. And such was the case with Epaphroditus. I remember it like it was yesterday. We were sitting in the living room and we did not know what we were going to eat for supper. You know, you hear stories like that, but it, it, it really does happen. And so I was sitting there and I'm thinking, and by the way, I, I wasn't sitting there doing nothing. I was working third shift pumping gas at a gas station. So it wasn't like I was not doing anything and just hoping God would come through. You need to get busy and be willing to do what you have to do. So I pumped gas from 11 to 7 at a full-service gas station, which is great because I did all my sermon prep in the wee hours of the morning. Nobody was coming through. Got paid to study. It was awesome. But we were sitting there just before supper, and I heard something at the door, and I, I thought, well, you know, it was, it was almost dark, and so I kind of ignored it. In a couple moments, I thought, I thought, well, I'll just go check. And there on the front porch of our house was bags and bags of groceries. To this day, I have no idea who came. I mean, we were just at the church, hadn't been there very long. I didn't see anybody come or go, but I went out there and I thought, man, that's, this is awesome. I'm going to tell you something. That not only did me good, but boy, I'm going to tell you something. Our daughters hung on to that for a very long time. Because you want to see God. You want to see God move. You want to see him work in your heart and in your life. But you'll need to be dedicated to a man dedicated despite malady. Then may I say this further? Dedicated despite mistreatment. Dedicated despite mistreatment. You're going to be wronged in life. Don't let it knock you down. You know, Epaphroditus, can you imagine this? What a bummer of a birthmark. Epaphroditus, his name means lovely. Can you imagine going through life as a guy? Hey, thanks, Mom. What's your name mean? Lovely. I mean, that's really a good way to go, isn't it? You want some good, strong, solid, strapping name for a guy? No, let's pick lovely. So Epaphroditus, all through life. I mean, he's already got one strike against him just by his name. You're going to be wronged in life. <laughs> I love the story about Charles Albert Tenley. Charles Albert Tenley was born in Berlin, Maryland in 1851, son of slaves. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln delivered the Emancipation Proclamation, and they were set free. Charles Tenley's family, when he was 12 years old, headed north to Philadelphia. He got a job at a book warehouse and was sweeping floors. His mother taught him to read and to write using the Bible as her primary source of education. Charles Albert Tenley became a powerful preacher. It was in those days of <coughs> Reconstruction, post-Civil War, and Charles Albert Tenley would often be invited to preach in some of the, the larger, predominantly white churches throughout the Northeast and throughout New England. On one such occasion, Charles Tinley was, was standing <coughs> and preaching, and the auditorium was filled over a thousand people. The doors and windows were lifted up and open, and people were standing outside just trying to hear this great pulpiteer. And Charles Tinley preached, and they gave the invitation. The altars were flooded, and at the close of the invitation, they invited Charles Tinley and the host pastor to stand at the exit. And he greeted people as they were leaving, and they had arranged for people to drop an offering, a collection for Charles Tinley and his family. 
While Charles Tinley was greeting people as they were leaving, he was within earshot of the men who were counting the money, the offering, the honorarium. And as they began to count, one of the men said it was too much money to give to a colored man. And Charles Tinley heard that, and he was so frustrated, so aggravated, he thought, here I am serving you, God. What have you done? Charles Tinley immediately left, went out a side door. They had a prophet's chamber prepared for guests and visiting preachers. And Charles Tinley threw himself on the ground. And he said, no sooner than he had fallen on the ground, the Spirit of God told him, get up, Charles. And he rose to his feet, and he sat at a table that was provided there. And with just a moment, a quick stroke of a pen, he began to pen the words, if this world from you withholds of its silver and its gold, and you have to get along with meager fare, just remember in his words how he feeds the little birds. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. One of the greatest hymns that we still draw strength and encouragement from, but it came out of great heartache. Many of the blessings that you'll ever enjoy in this life are because of the hurts and wounds of others. And you and I would be no less different. Charles Tinley continued to pastor, and at the time of his passing in the early 20th century, his congregation numbered almost 20,000 people. Why? Because he was dedicated despite mistreatment. No matter where you go, there will be moments where you'll feel slighted. You'll feel mistreated. But you stay in the race for the cause of Christ. Then may I say this further, number four, Epaphroditus was dedicated despite being missed. And I use that because it's an alliterated outline, right? But the word missed oftentimes will mean overlooked. Do you realize that most of you, most of us, will never be very well known? We'll be overlooked. Some of you may labor in a place that is forgotten and known by no one. It'll be a small town. And by the way, there's no shame in that. Sometimes we think, man, but I've got these, I've got these big dreams and big ideas. We all do. But you be willing to serve wherever God puts you. You know, he talked about covering things. You know, here I am at 60 years of age, and because of our staffing issues and the fact that our ministry is growing with our school, I have lunch duty with the elementary kids at noon every day. When I sat where you sat, I did not envision myself doing lunch duty and taking the trash out after lunch at age 60. But it is not beneath me. And I'm happy to do it. I don't say it complaining. I'm simply saying I had to make sure it was covered today. And wherever you serve, wherever you labor, know this, you might be forgotten by man. You might be overlooked, and you may hear stories that are thrilling about so-and-so who went so such-and-such place, and man, they're doing fantastic, and they're doing marvelous, and you're fighting tooth and nail to even stay in the ministry. Someday you may find yourself as that pastor was 10, 15, 20 years down the road, and you're in a fog, and you're not even sure if you can keep going. You stay dedicated despite the fact that you may never be known by man. David said, I have been young and am old and have never seen the righteous forsaken nor their seed begging bread. 
know this about God. He says about us in Isaiah, thou shalt not be forgotten by me. I don't care where you go. I don't care what you do. God will keep better records of you and your ministry than anyone ever could. You stay dedicated despite being missed. missed. And then number five, stay dedicated to the mission. Dedicated to the mission. In 1884, Captain Patrick Etheridge, who was a Coast Guard captain, off the coast of Cape Batteris, North Carolina. There was a ship, a vessel off, offshore, and it was in the midst of a terrible, terrible storm, perhaps a hurricane of those days. And the Ephraim Williams was the name of the vessel. It had 10, 10 or 11 men on it. And they sent one crew out, and as soon as they got past the breakwaters, their ship capsized. They all struggled to get back in. Another crew got ready to launch. Same thing happened to them. And then finally, they had made and exhausted every attempt to rescue the men from the Ephraim Williams. And one of the Coast Guard officers stood and said to Captain Etheridge, he said, sir, we may not come back. If we go and we attempt this once more, he said, we may not come back. And he looked at his men and he said, the blue, book, the blue book, which is the manual for the Coast Guard, doesn't say we have to come back. It only says we have to go. And one of the mottos they live by is we do this job because every once in a while, someone is out there without hope, desperately praying for their life, and we get to be the answer. And do you realize that even while you're here, there is someone in a distant town or village who is praying you'll come. They don't even know you. You've never visited there. It may be the farthest and remotest destination from your thoughts. But right now, there's a group of villagers huddled together asking God to send someone, praying desperately for life. And you get to be their answer. Darlene Diebler was a young lady in college. She heard a young man come through who was preaching. His name was Russell, considerably older than Darlene, but they met and began to travel and uh, communicated and dated long distance, if you will. Eventually, they were married. Darlene Diebler and her husband Russell traveled to Papua New Guinea just before the start of World War II. They had not been there very long at all until the war broke out. The hostilities had grown considerably in the Pacific area. And they were both taken to prisoner war camps. Her husband, Russell Diebler, died. All her hopes and dreams was, man, we're going to be on the mission field. We're going to serve God forever, and everything's going to be just wonderful. But then tragedy strikes. War breaks out. He dies in a prisoner war camp for men and she doesn't even know about it for many, many months after. She spends four years there, and when they're finally liberated at the end of the Second World War, she promises in her heart, Dr. Guess, she says, I don't even want to look back to that place. It's robbed me of everything. She said, I'll never return. 
And she said the vessel they were on, the U.S. Navy ship that was ferrying them away, and she said her heart smote her so greatly that she dared to take a glimpse back at Papua New Guinea. She went back to the States and remarried a man named Jerry Rose. Jerry Rose surrendered to the mission field to Papua New Guinea. Darlene went back and spent 30 years in a country she vowed to never return. Why? Dedicated. Dedicated despite malady. Dedicated despite mistreatment. Dedicated despite being missed. But dedicated to the mission and dedicated to the mark. In Greece, they have, in the ancient Olympiad, in Greece, they had a race that was not necessarily the one who finished first. It was the one who finished with her torch still lit. I preached my first sermon terrified. I remember reading it. I sat down on the front row after I preached. I was just a teenager, high school senior. And I buried my head in my hands and I said, I'll never do that again. I never wanted to stand in front of a crowd. I wanted to go to law school. I had all these hopes and things that I wanted to do. But if I could tell you one thing at age 60 now, I just want to finish the race with my torch lit. And I don't care where it is.